One of the wonderful joys of uh, reading uh, God's Word and hearing it preached and, and recognizing the various implications and applying the truths that we see in Scripture is to read God's Word within its literary context. You would think that that would be obvious. That's the way that we read anything else um, in order for us to make sense. But oftentimes what we tend to do is we take out a few verses and we atomize those verses and we isolate them and take them out of their literary context and then we want them to mean whatever we want it to mean for our benefit. Uh, But what's beautiful about this passage here, and and some parts of it you might be wondering, what does that mean? Um, Earlier on in verses uh, 28 and following... Uh, the scribes came, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and he asked Jesus which commandment is the most important uh, commandment among all commandments, and Jesus responded with what we will call the Shema. Uh, that is from Deuteronomy 6.4. And the Shema is just, that's just the Hebrew for here. It's a command. Here, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. With all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then Jesus adds another verse from Leviticus 19 uh, where it says, uh, And you should love your neighbor as yourself. And by the way, Jesus wasn't the first person who made this sort of combination in order to show that these two commandments represent the greatest uh, commandment, uh, which is really a a summary of the Ten Commandments, which uh, themselves are the summary of the 613 laws in the Old Testament. Um, But what's what's interesting about this is uh, a few things. Number one, when he quotes Leviticus, in Leviticus 19, there is, a, there is a comparative. That is, that we are called to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. But there's no comparative when it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It does not say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength as you love yourself. It does not do that because God doesn't have a point of reference. Right? God, God is who he is. And... So let me give you a brief description of this, because the text that we have, that we're looking at uh, tonight, is really an explanation of what it means to love God well or not love God well, or to love your neighbor well or not love your neighbor well, and so we need to see this within its context. Now, when it says, love the Lord your God, before that it says, uh, a hero is the Lord our God, the Lord is one. When we look at the word one in the Bible... Um, you need to know that there are two very important theological uh, uh, definitions or meanings for that use. Now, when we think of the word one, one, O-N-E, one, uh, we uh, tend to think of it as the first number in the sequence of cardinal numbers, right? One, two, three, and of course, that's the obvious use. But in the Hebrew and also in the Greek, and I would argue even in all of our modern, modern languages, that this word one has two unique usages. And the first one that's being used here is being used to refer to God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. In that sense, that usage and definition is referring to the uniqueness of who God is. The living God, Yahweh, the Lord, our God, he alone is the one and only. 
There is no other. And so there, there was a multiplicity or a pantheon of other pagan gods. And what the Bible is saying is that God is the only true, unique God in the midst of all of these other gods. That is why this idea gets developed throughout the canon of Scripture. And what we find in the book of Isaiah, for example, it says, I am the Lord your God, there is no other. And we'll see this kind of language even in the Psalter. And, and so what we find is that when the use of the word one is used to refer to God, it's referring to his uniqueness or his singularity. There is no comparison with any reality uh, in the cosmos. However, the word one can also be used in another sense. Not in the sense of uniqueness, but in the sense of unity. So we'll say things like, hey, we here, are, this congregation here at 2PC, we are one. Right? What, what do you mean by that? Well, we are one, unified, hopefully, unified body of God's people. And so you see this usage in, in uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, when it refers to one body, it refers to one, uh, one church, and, and, and so it, it has that sense of being unified. But here, the highlight is on the uniqueness of who God is. And therefore, when we worship this unique God, we need to have also a singular focus in our heart's devotion and commitment to him. When you look at the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, and it says, blessed are the pure in heart, it's not talking about moral purity. At least not there. So that's what you call right doctrine from the wrong text. There, what it's talking about when it says, blessed are the pure in heart, it's referring to a singular focus. It's talking about not having a duplicitous, double-minded, as James says, a double-minded heart. That means that you are so focused, you're pure in heart, that you are, you are completely devoted to this one true God. And those are the people who are blessed. Why? Because the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is no other. So in the midst of this background, we have a case study here as Jesus interacts uh, with others around the temple and as he talks about being uh, aware and being on guard against uh, the scribes. You need to know that there were many different opponents Going all the way back, several chapters, but you see the, 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 the climax of this opposition, which we're going to see in the Passion Week when Jesus is crucified and as he goes through suffering and he is uh, wrongly sentenced, so on and so forth. But, but we see that there are certain opponents, Pharisees, uh, the ones who were concerned about religious purity. You, you see the Sadducees, and they are the ones who are the, the liberal progressive arm uh, in Judaism. They didn't believe the resurrection, and uh, but they had a whole lot of authority because they were part of the ruling council called the Sanhedrin. You also had the Herodians. These were people essentially who were secular, and even though they were Jewish, they had essentially assimilated and accommodated to the Greek culture. And they, were, uh, they gave their allegiance to King Herod, who had no desire to know the things of God. And then you have the scribes. You have the experts of the law. And all of these people are trying to trap Jesus, as I said earlier on in chapter 12. They're trying to trap him. So the Pharisees were the conservative followers of God. And you had the Herodians, who were the liberal, kind of secular people. 
But it says in, in, in Mark chapter 12, they came together and they agreed on something. When was the last time you saw a, a progressive and a conservative agree on anything? But th- these two groups, they came together, they agreed on one thing. That was, of course, we don't agree with you on anything. But one thing that I, we are in agreement with one another is that we want to uh, uh, we want to oppose this person, Jesus, who's a controversialist. You see, Jesus was not received well by the progressives or the fundamentalists. Because, again, as I mentioned earlier, when you are part of a particular tribe, it doesn't matter whether you're part of the right tribe or the left. And the left shouldn't assume that the people on the right are fundamentalistic because the people on the right can now see, as they honestly assess what's going on on the left, that sometimes the most imperialistic and sectarian people are on the left. So what we find here is that Jesus is coming and he's challenging all of the different ideological families and communities because he is not concerned about wanting one one tribe to be on his side. No, he's on the side of truth. Amen. You know, when, whenever uh, uh, we... I'm involved in conflict in the church, and and you know people are always trying to 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 manipulate the pastor so that he will uh, side with them and say, hey, you got you got to be with us, right? We've been good to you, side with us, and and others will say, hey, you know, there needs to be change, and and you know these are some of the things that we need to consider, and and uh, I always say I want to be on the side of truth, <laughs> which means that truth might be opposing both of you, okay? And, um, and, and of course, I have to guard my heart that I don't fall into self-righteousness. And, and sometimes, you know, I'll joke with my wife and saying, you know, I don't know what's with these people on the right and on the left. And these people are always causing uh, trouble within the church or within the, the universal church. And, and, you know, why can't they just be like so balanced, you know, and so, so like gospel-centered and generous like, like you and myself? You know, why, why, why can't other people be like us? And, and sometimes, honey, I wonder about you. And so what we find here is the application or the implication of what it means to love God and to love neighbor. And now we're at our text. So the first we're going to see what we are not supposed to do. It's a negative case study on how not to love God and neighbor. And secondly, we're going to see uh, a positive case study on how we ought to love uh, our God and our neighbor. And thirdly, we'll round it out with some uh, gospel implications. So first is, what not to do. Let's look here again in verses 35 and following. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, uh, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So what is Jesus describing here? He is saying that You need to guard your hearts and beware of people like the scribes. 
Because these are the people who want to walk around in pretense, living a duplicitous life, and they are not living consistently to what they are teaching or preaching, and they don't even have the correct interpretation of that. We saw that earlier on in chapter 12. They want the Word of God to mean whatever they want it to mean for their own benefit and their own interest. And you've seen Christians do that, right? They'll go to certain places. They don't understand that particular verse or a few verses within its uh, literary context. And they want to apply it any which way that will serve their cause. And so Jesus is saying, don't be too concerned about your outer appearance. You need to be concerned, as we saw earlier, that it is not what uh, goes into the stomach that defiles you, but it's what comes out from the heart. So as David Paulison, the, the, great, the late great uh, David Paulison, used to emphasize this all the time, he said, there is a difference between the, the occasion for your sin and the cause of your sin. Which means that the occasion for your sin, the circumstances around your sin might be uh, disobedient children, or it might be a, uh, a, a husband who doesn't listen well, or, or it might be a, a, a nagging uh, extended family member who's being unrealistic. And it, it, there are many things within our circumstances and, and occasion, uh, but, but that's not ultimately the cause of our sin. And so Jesus is trying to say, look, be careful of what they're doing. They, they want to find a places of honor at feasts. They want to be able to wear a special robes. And again, there's nothing wrong with wearing robes, right? I wore a robe earlier uh, today. So am I, am I justifying myself just to make sure that I'm safe here? But uh, perhaps how do you know? And, and so it's, it's not as though he's, he's, he's saying that, oh, giving money is a bad thing. He's not saying that prayers are wrong or, or long prayers necessarily. That, that you pray for 30 minutes and you're like, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. Let me repent for praying for 30 minutes. It was too long. And so, so sometimes people say, oh, okay, I'm just going to pray like a five-second prayer. Well, how well can you know your wife if you talk to her for five seconds? So that's not the point. Of course praying is good. Of course respecting your elders. Right now, you know, I'm bicultural, so I can kind of move and shift whichever way I want to. If I want to be more Western, then I can just say, hey, I'm, an, I'm speaking as an American. If I want to speak more e- as an Easterner, then, then, I, then, then so I'm bicultural. So you'll see my doing that. Um, just, that's just to protect myself. <laughs> Deferring to your elders is a beautiful thing. I think our Western American culture can learn something about deferring to elders. And these are some beautiful qualities that we see in an Eastern culture. Right? I've always said that Eastern cultures uh, have a, a lot in common with archaeologists. We love and respect old things. So we respect and appreciate our elders because they've been through life. But, but what's going on here is that they were doing this in order to receive praise from other people. They were being ostentatious. They were doing something, say, hey, everyone, look at me. Look at how devoted I am. Look at how righteous I am. And if I may, especially for some of you younger folks, please don't, don't cancel me as I say this. 
You know, when you use Instagram or Facebook or any other social media uh, platform, if you want to say sweet things to your, uh, you know, your significant other, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, or wife, just do it in private, please. I don't need to know about it. You know? And so, be, being the cynic that I am, because I'm from the Northeast, right? So I'm always a little grumpy and a little cynical and, and unhappy. That, that I look at that and I'm like, why couldn't he just write a sweet, like, card and give it to his wife? Why does he have to broadcast it for everyone so that we can all see and be like, wow, what a, what a wonderful husband. I feel guilty right now because I don't do that. And if my wife is looking at this post, she's like, yeah, yeah, honey, why can't you be sweet like that? And you're like, well, because I'm not ostentatious. I, you know, I actually give you a real card. All right, so don't get touchy on me. I'm sure some of you do it out of, out of uh, a real love, um, perhaps. <laughs> what Jesus is trying to say is, if you're going to do it, this is what he says in, in Matthew chapter 6. He says that there are three different disciplines of grace. He talks about almsgiving to the poor. And then he refers to prayer and he gives the Lord's prayer. And then he talks about fasting. And in every instance, he says when, not if. Fasting is not an option. It's not like, oh, you know, hey, I need to lose some weight. Maybe I should fast for a couple. No, no, no. Fasting is a, is a habit of grace. Would you say, oh, I'll pray if I want to pray, maybe. Of course not. You pray. In the same way, we give to the poor and we, we pray and we fast. It, clearly, there are, they are parallel sections. Look at the language. They're identical. And, and each time, it'll say, oh, you know what? Don't do this. Don't help the poor and then to pray and then to fast and then let everyone know about it. Where you will be seen and heard by other people or other men so that you will receive approval because you will be seen by your father in heaven and that's what's significant so be concerned more about your private life than being more concerned about portraying your public life in in some sort of pretentious ostentatious way recognize the the primacy and the priority of the inner life in private that you will be so devoted to God so that when you're out there in the world and when you express that love, the grace that you have experienced and tasted in the gospel, in the person of Jesus Christ, that you will be able to do that. It happens organically. You don't need to announce it. That is what Jesus is addressing. He's saying, this is not a good case study. This is a negative case study of how not to love your God and neighbor well. Look at the Pharisees. They don't know how to love their God well, and they certainly don't know how to love their neighbor as well. Why? Because it says here that they devour widows' houses. And we don't know exactly what, what, what that meant, but it was something, some form of exploitation. Uh, they were giving them legal aid and advice and wanting some sort of uh, financial remuneration for that. And, and they were sponging off the hospitality of vulnerable uh, women because they, you know, they needed counsel for the estate, for the husband, and all of this. Because widows were part of the quartet of the marginalized in the Bible, the orphan, the, the foreigner, the widow, and the poor. They were exploiting them when they needed help and they needed demonstrations of mercy. And Jesus says, don't be like that. 
Beware of the scribes. Friends, you and I are all lovers. Some of us better lovers than others. But we all love. The question isn't whether or not you, one person is a lover and another, another person is not. Or that Christians are lovers and, and the non-Christians are not. No, we're all lovers. We all have an internal human capacity to be able to want and to desire, because that's the way we've been created. Our problem is, the tragedy is that sin has disordered our internal desires. God has created us to be able to love Him as our Creator, Sustainer, and Redeemer. But Apostle Paul says in Romans 1 that we have exchanged the love for the glory of God for those things that are created. That you love the created things. And you worship the created things. And you can put, you know, you can put an X there and, 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 and add whatever you want to. And, and please be careful for those of you who are in the tribes on the right and be like, yeah, 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 this is the problem with all those people who support this X. And you know what I'm talking about. This is a time when you're supposed to ask yourself, what are those things? What are those created things? What are those horizontal objects of my affection that I think will be able to give the answers for the things that I'm lacking that I'm not getting from God. So the tragedy of the human heart is that we have exchanged the glory of the Creator for and exchanged them for created things. And so this is not, this is an, again an example of what not to do. So that means that we have to guard our hearts against any form of elitism and rankism and snobbery and arrogance. And let me tell you, I'm from Boston, okay? I'm from Boston. Hey, did you see that uh, Hyundai commercial in the Super Bowl? Smart Park. There's a lot of arrogance in Boston. It, there's so much arrogance that it, it is so nauseating because people are so smart, they're so sophisticated and nuanced in, in talking about their arrogance, but they sound very humble about it. You know, when I was receiving my educational training uh, in Cambridge, what do you, what do you, they're, they're like two world-class institutions in Cambridge. Why don't you just say where, where you graduated from your institution? Don't make us guess. We know it's either MIT or Harvard. Unless you're referring to the real Cambridge, right? Which, okay, we'll allow that because we're a bunch of Anglophiles as Americans. But, you know, it's very subtle. Very subtle. And I'm sure you know this, and this is the reason why you hate uh, those of us who are from Boston, among other reasons. Uh, I know we're insufferable, right? But I won't go there. Um, we believe that we're superior as a culture and as a group of people because we're in the Northeast, in a city, in Boston, with the skill set and the competencies and the educational pedigree to be what we're doing. So, there's a whole lot of, you know, uh, C.S. Lewis used to talk about uh, chronological snobbery. 
We're modern people, sophisticated people. You know, we, 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 we live in a scientific age. So, so we look at the ancient world and we're like, oh, yeah, of course they, just, you know, they, of course they can accept the virgin birth. You know, what did they, they didn't have science. And really? Like, like people in the ancient world, they thought, yep, a man and a woman, they don't have sex. And poof, out of nowhere, you can have a child. That's a stupidity. That's not just snobbery. Of course ancient people knew you couldn't create a baby like that. But it's again, it's our chronological snobbery. Oh, you know, we're, we're, we're sophisticated. Oh, they were primitive. We'll use that language. They, they were, you know, we, we just pity them. They, we didn't, they didn't know any better. And I think that for many of us in the Northeast, there's a lot of geographic snobbery. So we'll say, okay, people below the... Mason-Dixon line, down there in the, the southern parts. And, of course, the West Coast, well, those people, they're, you know, they've got all sorts of issues, but at least they have elite institutions. Oh, you know, the West Coast, okay, okay, well, all right, they're strange, but, you know, we'll, 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 we'll tolerate them. And then perhaps some places in the Midwest around Chicago. Now, we, we don't talk like this because we would sound so stupid and foolish if we were this arrogant. But this is what many people believe. It's all about social positioning. And if you think that Bostonians are the only ones who are like this, check your own heart. Check your own heart. You calibrate your worth based upon those external benefits, external skills, and you will say, in your mind, you will calculate that I am more valuable and I ought to be more validated and more important than this other individual who went to this particular place or grew up in this particular place or is engaged in this particular vocation. That's really an Aristotelian, elitist way of looking at people. It's not the gospel way. And that is why when we find our identity in anything else outside of the gospel, we find our identity through our works righteousness, we find our identity through our social standing, we find our identity from how well we're being received by people, then when things don't go well, your life will become apocalyptic. Ernest Becker, the great Harvard uh, uh, psychologist, wrote a book entitled The Denial of Death. And he said that when you place the weight of your significant other to be your surrogate savior, then what you're doing is you're burdening that person with a responsibility that they cannot hold. The weight, the gravity is too severe. If you're going to another person and say, I've got a lot of problems and you have to be my savior, that's a pretty big responsibility. Not only do you have to try to figure out your own life, but now you've got to try to help figure out the other person's life. And you will be perpetually disappointing the other person because they have unrealistic expectations that you're going to be the savior of your relationship. And so when that person disappoints you, and this is why, again, older people uh, are a little more sane in this regard, because, you know, they They've gone through this multiple times and they figured out, oh yeah, yeah people are screwed up and, uh, and they're really sinners and they're really consumed with themselves. And we've got to kind of know how to navigate through this. But when you're younger, especially some of you, 
you need to be prepared. Because when you get disappointed, if your world is falling apart, then you have an apocalyptic view of your life. Oh, no, my world is coming to an end. No, that, the guy just didn't like you as much as you liked him. The world is not coming to an end. He probably wasn't even a good guy. Just tell yourself that. So we need to find our, our identity in something beyond what we do and beyond uh, what we show. So the litmus test, my friends, on this to, to guard our hearts and to see whether or not we're doing this well is to, to look at your sorrows and to look at your happiness. So this week, you had things that really disappointed you. And you're you feeling really down. And then there were moments of glimpses of glory, perhaps joy, happiness. You're really, really happy about that. That is a window, an aperture that opens up to show you what's going on in your heart. It's showing you that there are things, certain things that you're, you're drawn to, an affection that you have. And that's what... God is calling us to mortify. Beware of that impulse. Beware of the scribes. And secondly, and then what is the positive case study? Well, positive case study is given of the widow and her offering. Let's read here in verses 41 and following. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. So he's sitting in the uh, elevated place in the Mount of Olives, and he's looking down into the temple, and he can see all of the people coming and bringing uh, their coins in order to put them into the metal collection boxes or chests. So many rich people put in large sums. And probably, uh, since they were bringing a lot of coins, they probably, because they were being ostentatious, what did they do? They brought an assistant, kind of bringing in a barrel, you know, kind of bringing in a wagon saying, oh man, look, that guy's offering is so heavy. He needed assistance for this. So he brings it here, and then whatever case that it was in, and they drop all the heavy coins into these metal collection boxes that were kind of like an upside-down tuba, kind of formed like this. And then you can hear, you know, all of the clicking of the coins that are going down, and you're you're saying, whoa, whoa, okay, that that was a heavy one. Oh, wow, wow, we're still hearing the sound of this? And the person just standing there saying, yep, this is why I'm good. This is why I'm impressive. This is why you should accept me and approve me and validate my worth. But of course, Jesus is not impressed with that. What is he impressed with? Look here, verse 42. And a poor widow came. That's a little bit redundant, by the way. All widows were poor. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which would have been very, very light, so if you throw those, in, those light coins into the collection box, you're like, wait, did I hear something? You probably wouldn't hear them dropping in, which make a penny. So each copper coin was worth half a penny. But this was her entire livelihood. And he called his disciples to him and taught them a lesson based upon this. 
He says, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on, she gave. Now, I know this is a this is not the passage that was read to you, but, but after he gives this lesson to the disciples, you would think, oh, okay, we get it. We're not supposed to be impressed by the external things. We need to guard our hearts. That it's, it's a matter of being able to give sacrificially, completely, like this wonderful positive case study. And then look what it says in chapter 13. Right after this, listen to this. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. They didn't get it. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, do do we get it? Do we understand what, what the cost of following Jesus is? Do we know that there is, there is a, a cost to discipleship? Do we know that God's plans are for us to be able to dedicate and devote ourselves? For those of you who are doing this and giving of yourself and giving of your life and service or all the vi- different ministries that you're involved in? Could that be a picture of your devotion to Christ? Perhaps. And you should be encouraged by that. That God has given you opportunities. But here is, here is the, the, what, we, what we will call the interpretive key for understanding everything that's going on here. Okay? See if you can follow with me here. It says here in verse 43. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in, what does it say? More than all. You see that language? It's like comparative. More than all. Well, we saw that earlier somewhere. Look what it says in verse uh, 33. In verse 33, one of the scribes, after Jesus taught him about the, the great commandment, uh, he pretty much said, you know what? Yeah, this is what it is. And, and, and he, he ends it by saying this. He says, uh, and to love him with all your heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Okay, same language. And then we go here earlier on in in, uh, chapter 12, verse 28, where it says, which commandment is the most important of all? Similar, not identical. where, where Where the question is being asked, which law is more important than all the other laws? And what, what Jesus is trying to say is that you need to determine what is more than all. You need to understand what is the priority of your life. What is the ultimate goal and plan for your life? Is God your ultimate object or is he penultimate? Is he derivative? Are, are there other things that have a higher priority in your affectional ranking? You have to ask yourself that. When I'm prioritizing things, who is, a, who is on top? Who is the most important object of my affection in my affectional ranking? Is God more than all? Everything else? Or is my self-righteousness? Or are my skills? Or even my own service? Are these things more important than loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? And what this woman was essentially saying is that Jesus is more than any. Thing else, because she gave 
everything. That's what the language says. It says that, that she said out of her poverty has put in everything she had. All that she had to live on. And my question to you is, who is Jesus to you? Now, you don't have to raise your hands, but I, I think for this evening service, um, I noticed some single people, right? I love single people because we just had a conference on singleness. And Second Press should probably have a conference on singleness. But, but we had a conference on singleness, and we invited Sam Alberry. We just wrote a book on singleness, and he came. It was a, it was a wonderful conference. And, and um, for those of you, single people, is that your ultimate object in your affectional ranking? Again, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be in a committed relationship and and for God to provide you a a wonderful uh, husband who would cherish you and to love you or somebody who's going to be in a committed relationship or or for uh, for a young man to to desire that from another uh, uh, young woman. But is Jesus simply a, what I would say, a dating app savior who will give you someone to love? Is he a good life savior? I just need for him to be able to give me the good life. Just give me a happy life. You know, don't disrupt my life. You know, I don't want a delay-free obstacle. Uh, I want a delay-free obstacle-free life. And what he's trying to remind us over and over again is he will be nothing less than the sovereign Savior and the King of the cosmos. He will be nothing less for you in your life. So we are called to love the Lord our God with all our hearts because he is not only the son of David. Remember the earlier passage that we went, and I'll end with this. He's not only the son of David. He's not saying he isn't the son of David. Because 2 Samuel 7 clearly says that the future heir and the Messiah and the Christ will come as an heir from David in the Davidic line, and he will be coming from the line of Judah, and he will be uh, the lion of Judah, and he will also be a lamb-like lion and a lion-hearted lamb. He will be all of that. And he will come through the Davidic line. So Jesus is not saying, oh, the Bible is wrong on that, and he is, uh, he is not the son of David. No, he, he's saying the problem with all of you is that you simply want him to only be the son of David. This Savior is not, is not a domesticated God. You can't just tell him what you want to do and, and tell him to just simply come and endorse your agenda or your plan. He is the Savior of the universe. And that is why this uh, great scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, remember in the Narnia Chronicles where Mr. Beaver uh, comes to uh, one of the girls, Susan, uh, and uh, she's having a, a conversation with Susan and Lucy, and, uh, and they don't know that Aslan, who is the Christ figure, the lion, uh, who, is, who is representing Jesus in the, in the story, uh, that they didn't know that he was a lion. They thought he was a man. So Lucy asks Mr. Beaver, is he a man? Aslan, a man? said Mr. Beaver. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who he is? He is the king of the beast. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. And then Susan's getting a little anxious and nervous, and she responds by saying, Oh, okay, I thought he was a man. I'm a little nervous now. 
is he, is he safe? I'm not sure if I feel safe meeting a lion. And you know how Mr. Beaver responds to that by saying, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he is good. Friends, Jesus is not safe. He is holy and utterly set apart. He's not someone who can be managed. But the good news of the gospel is, not only is he completely holy, but he's also humble and he is good. He's good to be kind, to show steadfast, unconditional love to people who are in great need. And so as we consider the cost of discipleship, to live out our lives on mission, friends, think through this. It's not about what you can do. It's not about what you can show. It's not what you can achieve. It's not what you can obtain. It has everything to do with what have you received? What has been given to you? What is the mission and the purpose that God has given to you? And if you are willing to be utterly devoted and to sacrificially give all that you have in complete allegiance to this unsafe but good and great king, then that's where you'll find safety. That's where you're going to find meaning for your life. That's where you're going to be able to live a life where your life isn't going to fall apart when something terrible happens in a given week. But you will be able to have the kind of equilibrium and the balance to be able to say, you know, I'm not going to go get too low if things are not going well. And certainly I'm not going to boast in myself when things are going too well. Because I live simply by grace. So I'm going to, I want to, I want to lead us in a, in a moment of prayer here, if I may, as we think about this. Um, so pray with me, and I'll just have you consider a couple of things. And, and uh, answer these in your minds. Is Jesus simply the son of David, or is he the Lord who said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, who has ultimate and cosmic authority? David is referring to the future Messiah, as his Lord. Jesus is David's Lord, even as he's the son of David. Who is Jesus to you? What kind of a savior is he? Is he ruling over your life? Ask yourself about the priorities of your affectional ranking. Examine your hearts, my friends. And are you loving God well? And are you loving neighbor well? Or are you simply just loving yourself well? And those who are closest to you because when you love them, it also benefits you. Are you able to respond like this widow who was able to give everything that she had, all that she had to live on? The, the, the emphasis here, again, is to be able to say that she gave all that she had. Why? Because she ultimately knew that Jesus was the one who ultimately gave everything for her. He didn't just give her a lot. He gave it all. That's what the Savior has come to do. That he has more than all things in our lives. And he was willing to give us all, even at the expense of laying down his own life. So let's think through this. And let us pray. Let us repent if we need to. <laughs> let us repent and say, Lord, have mercy upon me. I want to change. I want to be 
the kind of follower and disciple of yours, like this widow and not like the scribes. I want to be humble and not proud. I want to be able to submit to the lordship of Jesus rather than just simply making him what I want him to be in my imagination. Pray these things. Repent of these things. And ask God the Holy Spirit to change you from the inside out. Because he will. If Jesus Christ himself did not withhold his own life in order order to call us to live this kind of sacrificial and dedicated life, then there's nowhere else where we can get the power. This is where we're going to find it. Let's spend a few moments here praying. And if one of the pastors can come here and close us out in prayer. that we might seek you first above all things and that other things would fall away. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.